Welcome to the One Within All to Another episode of the Interverse Podcast. I'm your host, Chance, and today we're going to be having a riveting conversation about moving from dependence to independence. And we have an awesome guest lined up for that particular uh, agenda. So we have Parallel Mike from the Parallel Systems Broadcast, ParallelMike.com. Mike was so kind to invite me onto his show last month where we had a really great conversation about tuning and then... So a second hour got deep into occult history and the myth of Columbus. A lot of fun. I hope people go back and find that episode if they haven't heard it yet. And today I'm looking forward to finding out more about Mike's backstory. And he is a currently a homesteader in Poland, but originally hailing from the UK. Definitely a colorful <laughs> origin story for Mike. If you go look at his website on the about page and Mike is an athlete, a a therapist, a counselor, coach has all of these great ideas about how to get our financial sovereignty back. And in particular, definitely a good critical eye on the machinations of the economic machine. So Mike, welcome to Interverse. Thanks for being here, man. How you doing? Yeah, I'm doing great chance. And thank you for that really nice introduction. And also for joining me on my podcast. He was one of my very first guest and it went down so well. And uh, yeah, I appreciate everything you're doing at your place on Inverse. I got into it after I found you and uh, I think you're doing awesome work. So uh, it's an honor for me to be on your show. Oh, thanks, man. I appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, you're among many legends to uh, come be a guest here. And I know you'll live up to it because you have so much experience in a variety of areas that could be legitimately helpful for people to, you know, find out your thoughts about and get your insights on. But first for those new to you, and you know, I'm pretty new to you. I'd love to hear more about how you went from <laughs> the son of a British gangster <laughs> to a uh, podcasting freedom fighter, you know? Yeah. So it's quite a interesting backstory, I guess, because, it conjures up lots of Hollywood movies. You know, if you, if people find out that, yeah, it was my father, he was basically really high up in British um, crime. So he was a gangster. So I guess 
if you've seen The Sopranos or, or a TV series like that, it's, it is a lot like that. It is just like that, actually. And a lot of the stories from my childhood, they uh, would seem ridiculous to some people. But of course, when you're growing up, I didn't know any of those things. I didn't know that my dad was doing this. I thought he was a businessman. He had different businesses and uh, he used to go around, we'd go to like a pub or a restaurant and like 30 people would come across in the space of an hour to shake his hand and everyone wanted to be around him. And I, I just thought, oh, he's really popular, <laughs> you know, he's really, and he was popular because uh, I, I guess he was popular in the city, but he was also very powerful. And uh, I didn't know any of this. The first indication I've got of his story was when I woke up one day, I was getting dressed for school and I heard on the radio that... Uh, well, I had the same name as my dad, first and last name, and I heard the name on the radio that he'd someone has been arrested from the city I was in, and they said his name, and I said, "Oh my God, that's my name!" <laughs> like at first, there was this confusion. I was only—I think I was about—I must have been about nine or ten, maybe ten, uh, and it was a—it was the biggest ever smuggle of cannabis resin to the UK. It was about forty million dollars worth in today's money. Uh, back then it would have been more like it was around twenty million dollars worth. So it was a really big thing. And of course it was all national media, mainstream media. Uh, I went to school that day and my mum had lied to me in the morning. She said, no, no, it's 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 not nothing to do with us. Of course she knew at the time and she was probably scrambling on the phone to figure out what was going on. And that's how I found out. I I got home that night, I got sat down and they said, yeah, that was your dad. And then of course I went through this journey after that of figuring out who my dad actually was, what he was involved in. And, you know, he went to prison for a long time. I, I was still, he came out and then went to prison for a second time. So my childhood was very strange. Uh, and I kind of had to reinterpret the whole childhood after I found out who he was and everything started to make sense. Then why, as I got older, I realized my childhood wasn't normal. It was actually very strange, but of course, growing up, you don't know that until you uh, start to meet other people and socialize and yeah so it was an interesting one you know this might be kind of a personal question to start with but one thing i notice when i work with people is how often the challenges that their parents had end up being challenges that they hold on to and so with a father who was involved in sort of a double life or secrecy like that do you do you find or have you found that you had to work on a tendency to keep secrets or to have anxiety about secrets? Actually, I'd say it was quite the opposite with me. I'm, I, I was always somebody who was always too honest. I was super open all my life. And uh, I guess growing up in those circumstances, I was always somebody who was really, I'd, I'd say it's more of an extrasensory perception of people's thoughts and feelings. And I used, because I used to see so many different characters, larger than life characters, uh, you know, different these people would have been criminals too, or the gangsters. We used to, you know, I used to go to different countries. I'd go to Spain and then there'd be all these people coming. So I'd always be watching because I was a child. So I didn't know what was going on. And of course they were having adult conversations, but I'd be sat there watching people and trying to understand what was going on and seeing the faces and the reactions. So I was always quite keenly aware of people's thoughts and emotions. And I was naturally empathic growing up. So yeah, I was kind of the opposite. Although I did certainly inherit some traits from my father, for sure. So um, growing up, I got myself, like, as I became a teenager, I had a really troubled youth. I got into lots of problems. I got kicked out of school when I was 14. Uh, I used to get, I, I had a really bad temper, so I used to fight a lot. I, I used to always feel like everyone was out to get me. So that anxiety portion of it was certainly there. And I probably inherited that from my dad because he lived in a world of high anxiety because he was being 
he was a criminal, so the police were watching him. You know, we had our we had our phones tapped when I was younger. I remember once picking up the phone and hearing the police officers talking on the other end of the phone. And of course, again, I had no idea what was going on, but later on I found out what what had happened. So all these strange experiences certainly influenced my youth. And uh, I did have to I, I started to go down a, a, a pretty poor path when I was kicked out of school. I got involved in the wrong crowd. Uh, and I had this name, and that name was a really big uh, anchor in my life in that city because I could go anywhere, and everyone knew who I was, and they knew my name. So if I, you know, if I went and said, "Oh, I'm so so and so," they'd immediately know I was his family member, and you'd see the face, like <laughs> this, like shocked look on the face. And I had that all the time. Like I got kicked out of school. Like I said, then I went to a new school. Everyone knew who I was at that school. Like the 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 cock of the school, you know, the, the school bully came across and he was like, are you so-and-so son? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, okay. He's like, well, we're, we're fine. We're good together. And it was, you know, all those things were kind of overwhelming as a child because I was quite an introvert. Uh, so I certainly didn't like that. And yeah, when I, I did go down a pretty crappy path and I was getting myself in bother and uh, I was really fortunate because when I was about 16, uh, I met a mentor by accident. I actually went to a local arts college with a friend. They were enrolling for the course and I was waiting for them. That's all I was the only reason that's the only reason I was there. And I was sat in the canteen listening to some uh, music on my CD player. I had, you know, I was into punk rock, so uh, I had lots of patches all over me. And this guy came and sat across from me and said, Oh, what are you listening to? And he was an older guy, but he was really quirky looking, like really quirky looking. Like he looked like well, he looked like an artist. That's what he was. And anyway, we struck up a conversation and uh, it turned out he was the, he just moved there and he was the new head of department. And he said, listen, what are you going to do with your life? Like, what, what's your interest in? I said, nothing. I, was like, I ain't got no, I'm not doing anything. I was like, I've, I left home when I was 16. So he said, well, what's your plans? I was like, I ain't got no plans. Like I had zero ambitions, uh, really low self-esteem. So he said, listen, he's like, you seem like a decent guy. He's like, that punk music, he said, I play that in my lessons. If you come along, do a bit of art, listen to some music, he said, you'll enjoy it. So uh, he convinced me to enroll. So I did. And uh, he kind of helped me over the next year or so get myself back on the straight and narrow. And that was really the start of me and um, developing myself, getting out of that life that I was living. I gave up drink, gave up drugs and alcohol, uh, became an athlete, started boxing, went back to university. And that, that was really the start of me um, growing as a person. Yeah, I do. I actually do see that too. Sometimes like the, the son or the daughter will take an opposite approach to the parent, but it sounds like there was some challenge, you know, maybe at the beginning you were more of a paranoid Mike than parallel Mike. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there was certainly some of that for sure. There was, uh, on account of the copious amounts of weed that we used to smoke and, uh, yeah, we was just all about checking out of life. I mean, the city I grew up in, Chance, it was a real no-hope city. It was actually voted the worst city in Europe at one point because uh, heroin use was the high. Well, I think it was the highest in Europe for a time, teenage pregnancy. It was a really rough city, and uh, it wasn't an easy one, and there was very low aspirations amongst uh, the people that I was around growing up. You know, we never got told that you could be anything or anyone. It was like I remember when I went to careers advice, and it was like, well, you could be a cleaner, <laughs> you know, that, that was it. You know, that was kind of the highest height you're going to achieve. Is you'll be a cleaner, the lowest rung of a ladder. So uh, it was a difficult one, but um, certainly uh, I'm glad to 
I'm, I'm glad that I managed to make it out of that, but I still had those experiences because I think that really informed uh, the career path that I took and my outlook on life, which has helped me. So we are going to talk about economic ideas here. And I remember for me, actually, the, probably the beginning of waking up to the, the true nature of how the world is currently governed and ruled would have been back in when I was in university in my final year as a, an English major, they gave us an assignment to do a research project and like multimedia presentation on a topic of a, your choice, you know? So I started, I had seen the Zeitgeist movie back when that floated around in 07 and it had stuck in the back of my mind. It, uh, it did a number on me. It actually put me into a, like a, a hole of atheism and materialism because as it was presented in that film, it was like, oh, all religion is a scam. Look, every solar deity that has the exact same parallel story as Jesus. And it kind of left out the, <laughs> the, the philosophy that is true and good and beautiful in those systems that have all the similarities. But that being said, the project I took on was to do, uh, to expose the economic model of fiat and debt, because I just couldn't believe as I was learning about it, that almost nobody around me had any awareness that their money is debt, that every dollar created has, uh, you know, a dollar, whatever attached to it is how much needs to be paid back. And that we were playing a giant game of musical chairs with our money where it was by design, there would have to be some people who had some and didn't have some. And, you know, the question in here in terms of like where the town you grew up in, uh, when I was doing that project, I found some research that showed how places where there's a very wide divergence of uh, income and economic uh, capability between people where there's very poor people near very rich people and they're close together and can see each other. Those are the areas where for everyone involved, wealthy or not, there are a much higher incidence of the things you're just listing, teenage pregnancy, drug use, you know, fighting and uh, despair, right? So do you think that that was a factor in where you grew up and maybe even influenced your interest in, you know, later studying economics? Yeah, I, I had a really strange experience with money because of whom, because of my dad and his career, like he used to walk around with a roll of uh, like 50 pound notes and it'd be so fat, you know, he'd pull it out and it'd just be a huge, you know, nobody had 50 pound notes and nobody had cash like that. And if you went to his house, like you'd look in the cookie jar, there'd be a roll of cash in his closet, there'd be stacks of cash and there was cash everywhere. And of course I was young, so I had no relationship with money. So all I did was learn from the people around me. And I went from this kind of feast to famine because when he was not in prison and he was, he had all these businesses and money just rolling in. Like I, I just thought, Oh, that's how it is. You know, people just have money. There's no, there's no scarcity at all. But when he, once he went to jail, I just had the complete 180 because him and my mum had uh, split up and divorced. And I was living with a, now she was a single mum working a minimum wage job. So it's like the complete opposite. So now everything was scarce and I got to see the other side where it's like every penny was being counted and you couldn't afford to have, you know, the best clothes or if you asked for something, the answer was probably going to be a no. So it was a strange upbringing. And I guess what that led me to, to feeling as a young adult was I don't care about money as such because 
all I saw was it be destructive. It was destructive in one extreme that somebody craved it so much that they would become a criminal uh, and live this like really wild life of being a you know a gangster. And then the other side of it was the desperate side. So I, I kind of went off again on a completely different track, which was to pursue the more meaningful life, which was to find things uh, of meaning. So I studied theology at university. Uh, I specialized in Buddhism and Eastern traditions uh, and existential philosophy. And then I went back to become a counselor and a therapist. And that's what I did with my life. So it was all, it, there was no money kind of incentive in that career. It was, and I think that was one of the problems that I had is that I'd become so turned off by money. And I just saw it as this corruptor that I really just didn't want to think about it. And I wanted to do what was meaningful. And then I'm sure we'll talk later about um, my athletic career when I became an ultra. And again, it was pursuing something meaningful. It's probably the least lucrative spot that you could be in there's no money in that spot so yeah i guess i just got so turned off by, by it that i went away but in terms of what you were saying as a city yeah that that definitely was the key i mean people in that city there was there was i guess it was like a desperation and that led to people looking for ways to get out of it and if you can't do it if there's no social contract that's working and i guess the ladder's not easy to climb, then people will look for an easier escape. And that would be, you know, selling drugs was a big one. Like in high school, I remember everyone was selling drugs. It was everywhere. You know, I used to get offered drugs four or five times a day. It was that, it was like, I remember one time a guy come to the school, he was selling uh, air rifles. He'd open up his jacket and he'd have, he'd have like an air rifle stuck on the inside. Like it was a crazy place. Like, <laughs> like a cartoon character. Honestly, it was, it was like that. Yeah. It was like a cartoon character at times. And uh, you know, and it, it led to lots of hardships for the people. And I, I, I feel real tragic about some of the stories there because people didn't have much chance because the families they were coming from, it was intergenerational uh, trauma and poverty. And by the time you get two or three cycles into that, you know, that child that's growing up has very low chance of getting out of that unless somebody intervenes, unless they meet a mentor, unless they find a sport and have a coach that you know, pulls them away from going down the wrong path. And like I said, I was so fortunate that somebody did that. And that influenced me and my career path because then I thought, well, I want to do that for somebody else. Like I don't want, you know, there's all these people that could have been helped and they wasn't helped. So I just wanted to kind of, I guess, do something a bit more meaningful. Sorry, Chance, I'm just going to have to plug my laptop in. I've got to plug it in before we started. Yeah, no problem. I'll, I'll hold it down for a moment. Um, so... <laughs> Have you ever heard of a book called The Money Grows on the Tree of Knowledge before? I've not had that one, Chance, no. Oh, man. So as a theological you know, student <laughs> and an economic student, you really ought to look this one up. So it's by Tracy Twyman, a, a late and great author over here from the States. And this you know, maybe if, as I kind of summarize the ideas here, you'll be able to riff on how you see it applies. But basically, this is a book about the history of money. And it's a it demonstrates the, you know, goes back to like the Phoenicians minting coins and then into the Templars creating the banking system and the reserve system of, you know, checks and notes for to exchange for gold. And where it gets really interesting and really weird is how she explores the alchemy of economics. And I like to use this term alchemics because in the modern sense, 
this is exactly what is being done with our currency. Essentially, the idea or the imagination of value has been applied to worthless piece of, pieces of paper, not even just worthless, but that they're actually, they're actually debt. So there's been a great alchemical working done to transform debt into value through the mind and through the imagination of the people. And, you know, you look at some of these bigger thinkers in how our current system was developed, you know, a hundred or so odd years ago, and they've still, they're still running journals like the alchemist that is one of the top and oldest economic uh, journals or magazines out there. So, you know, I'd love to explore that concept. I can bring out more examples, but if you see an alchemical process going on in the economy, I'd love to explore that. Yeah, I actually see it as a deeply esoteric um, system that we've got. And of course, in the modern era, we've had meaning stripped from our lives by design so that people see things in a very black and white way. And I think that serves the system itself because people don't look too deeply into things. If you've got a very simplistic explanation or actually sometimes to do the opposite and make it so complex that nobody can look into it. You know, they try and make it so difficult that people just say, oh, I don't want to know. This gives me something. I can go to the shop and spend it. That's all I need to know. And I think you put it beautifully. That's exactly how I put it as well. But I say it's uh, essentially reverse alchemy because what they've done is they've taken things of value that we used to exchange for other things of value. So that is where money came from. We'd have a piece of metal that was rare. It was difficult to get out of the ground. It required the finite resources of human time and human effort. And once that thing was out of the ground, it stored that energy. It stored that time and effort because it couldn't be done in a more expedient way. So that was what money was intended to be. It was a store of value, a store of human time and effort. And they reversed that. And now they've given us something that is essentially a zero cost. It's uh, digits on a screen. So it's a reverse alchemy. They've turned it from gold back to lead. Uh, and what we've got now, it's even worse than lead, Chance. If I gave you some lead, you could at least sell the lead. But these pieces of paper only have value by fiat because somebody says they have value. And therefore, that means somebody at any point can debase that currency and reduce its assumed value in society. And we saw that throughout 2020 and 2021, where the currencies of the world all of a sudden lost 20, 30% of the value, you know, because they decided to print a lot of it for their uh, scams and ideas and agendas. And that's exactly what we're seeing take place. And if you look back throughout history, this has happened thousands and thousands of times, you know, they print these currencies to zero, we go to a hyperinflation, they reset it. But with each cycle of that, they managed to take more and more power. And that's how we've got to this globalist type situation, because with the fiat currency system, you can force people to work for something that is valueless or that is reducing in value. And therefore, they're stealing, robbing us of our time and effort, those finite resources that I just spoke about. They take that from us and they do it in many ways. So one way is inflation, which is the debasement, like I said, and the other way is taxation. You know, most people today, we are taxed so heavily on our, on our income that you work the first, first four or five months of the year for free, you know, just to pay your tax burden for the year. So we're really at a crazy point in history now because it's got, I think they've squeezed people so hard and people's expectations are so high that they're not ready for what's going to come next. And uh, that's one of the reasons why I started the Parallel Systems broadcast was to really try and, you know, I thought, what's the, what's the most help I can do for this situation? You know, we're all sat there watching it unfold and complaining 
And I thought, well, I could teach some people or help some people understand some of the things that are going on. Uh, and like you said, the reverse alchemy that's going on, that's exactly how I see it as well. Yeah. And then there's this whole aspect of basically feeding on youth <laughs> with that, you know, even the, what you just said that you're working the first few months of the year, or even depending on how much you make potentially like half of the year is like, uh, as a slave, you know, being taxed into oblivion. But I'm going to quote from Twyman's book here where she says the alchemical production of money, artificial gold by the banking system, seemingly out of nothing is actually based upon the use of youth and future progeny as resource material to create wealth that can be enjoyed today by their parents. More importantly, that wealth can then be taken by the people whom those parents are obliged to serve. And, you know, there's many ways that that statement is true and deeply true. But for example, as you said, with inflation, every time, uh, you know, somebody takes out a loan and creates more debt through the credit that is, you know, then added to the system as the money in fiat currencies created out of thin air. And then, uh, but there's more debt attached to it than what is actually given <laughs> that inflates the system more and more people doing that more and more devaluing of the currency. And so the future generation, the next generation will bear, you know, the load of that bill, not only will their inheritance, which is then also taxed multiple ways, if they even get an inheritance, worth less but then their purchasing power their dollar is all worth less so you know there's there's so much to that but it's definitely there there's this aspect of alchemy when you study uh the esoteric writings of the past around it where there's a lot of whether it's symbolic or literal talk about the use of the blood of children or sacrificial victims or you know even in construction projects of the past it was common practice to embed the bodies into like a bridge or into a building to appease spirits you know so there's always been this weird undercurrent of sacrificing youth you know and that's the first few months of the year that you're being taxed like that that's all taxed you know that's the youth that's your springtime the beginning energy of that cycle sacrificing youth's energy stealing it to the present and you know selling out the future generations it and it's mostly done unconsciously or as a you know fear of a need to do it for survival yeah and the system today has been so corrupted that people are living in a fantasy like the system itself is officially bank bankrupt and everybody knows it if you look at unfunded liabilities uh, in the US you're talking 150 trillion 150 trillion well it's took hundreds of years for the US to get to uh, I think it's 34 and a half trillion we're at now or something like that uh, and it half of that came in just the past decade alone so you can see there's this exponential rise but then there's all this hidden debt as well which is unfunded liabilities then you've got a system that's so highly financialized now we're talking quadrillions in debt within the system so the system can't last and it has to fail and i guess where we are today is we're living in this illusion and people are being taught that if you go to work if you follow the um conveyor belt that way put on from birth to death you know you go to school you go to college you know you do your job you get your career chance 
You'll get yourself a mortgage and you'll be fine. You'll get paid out as a pension when you're older. No, it's not going to happen. You know, and this paradigm uh, that people are being put into, that is a form of sacrifice too, because we're, we're, like you said, we are sacrificing our life. You know, this is our time. This is our moments with our family. This is doing things that we're passionate about. And the way people work today, you know, there's not really much meaning in the jobs anymore because we're not working in small communities. We're working for big faceless corporations and that's only ever expanding. So you become just a cogging in a machine and then a lot of people have to commute a long way or even working from home. You know, that's not turned out to be as nice as people thought it would be because now you're stuck in a little box. So we're sacrificing these really meaningful experiences. You know, people used to work in small communities People would come into the local bakery, they'd know every customer, they'd have chats with people. It would be meaningful, they'd have ownership over their own labor, or they'd work for somebody that actually valued them for what they were. You know, it used to be that when my, say my granddad, for example, he could leave one job and then he'd go straight into another job. It'd be easy because people would know you just by reputation alone. Today, it's not like that. Today, there's um, gatekeepers for all these jobs and they want you to do everything the official way to have the right certificates uh, to say the right things to act the right way and it's more about image and you are really expendable you know you're just a disposable cognate so that makes your life feel much more meaningless uh, and i think you know this robbery that's happening i think this is something that as soon as possible if, if somebody's out there listening to this and he's feeling yeah, I actually don't feel like my labor counts anymore or that my, my path has been almost kind of thrust upon me. I think there's never been a better time to change that. And there's so much opportunity now. But once this system fails, once this big debt pyramid collapses, then all of a sudden it's going to be really hard to make those changes. But whilst we're still in this system and whilst it's still there, there's still so much possibility for you to earn wealth out there uh, and I, I don't think there's, I mean, even with all the problems that are happening, I don't think it's ever been easier for people to figure something out that where they can go back to something more uh, self-sufficient, more uh, meaningful, more close to nature. And uh, yeah, that's something that we talk about a lot because I think the opportunity is there for everyone. Yeah, man. And uh, in this conversation, what can really help is to get a proper definition of terms because we interchange ideas like money, wealth, and currency when there are distinct meanings between those words i really prefer to go back to older dictionaries to ascertain a better de de uh, definition of a word right so if you go to webster's 1828 dictionary and you look up money it's referring to coin as in stamped metal used by a public authority as a medium of commerce so something that has physical value you know Gold is going to be exactly as it was, even if it was on the bottom of the ocean in a thousand years, it's not going to change. And then a second definition is of money is banknotes or bills of credit exchangeable for coin <laughs> or redeemable. So that's not the same thing as the banknotes we're currently using because they're not exchangeable for anything. And then the third definition of money is wealth or affluence. So then you go and actually look up the definition of wealth and it is prosperity or external happiness riches as in possessions of money goods or land and so you know what is prosperity prosperity is like anything tangible it's your progeny it's your children it's your, what's actually a physical part of your estate and so you know we've really gotten into this weird you could call it in a biblical sense like mammon mentality 
And part of what's twisted humanity up so much is this marketplace of artificial valuation upon nature, right? Where the source is priceless and everything that comes from nature and in nature is an, an, an expression of source and is priced less as in there's not a price tag on any material or any animal or anything like that. It's not inherent this number that we attach to it is <laughs> not inherent to its existence. Right. And then we go and extract those things from nature and call them resources, but they're coming from, they're really part of source. And I think that that's really where we're getting a lot of confusion in our life and existence, because if we're calling debt wealth, if we're calling that, if we're calling debt money, well, the real wealth would be the fact that a tomato seed, one tomato seed, can give you infinite tomatoes. You know, that's why that thing from nature is source. It's priceless. Yeah, it seems like it's cheap and it's abundant too, but it's also like an infinite supply. So, you know, that's really where the wealth generation comes in and where it's actually not as hard as it seems that we're never, we never left nature. We're part of nature always, even if we pretend that we're not. And there's ways to tap into that infinite abundance flow. Yeah, I think so too. And I think a lot of this chance goes back to this disconnect that has happened, particularly since the 1970s, between the people who actually work in nature and actually engage with nature to extract food, to extract, extract resources, what we would say was the original form of money. Because in communities, what we used to do is we'd, we'd grow food, you'd have somebody who specialized in chopping wood, you'd have somebody who specialized in mining or pulling out metals, somebody who specialized in refining. And that is how communities were built. And the only reason that money was necessary was because we started to expand those communities. So whilst I might have been quite happy to share my fishes with you, Chance, because we live next door to each other, we're all invested in the same project here, we're all looking to have this community thrive. So I don't care if, <clears throat> excuse me, I don't care if you don't have enough potatoes from your harvest this year and it's not a fair trade. It's like, no, I want you to succeed and you want me to succeed. So we can have those kind of flexible relationships. But the moment we started to go beyond that and say, right, there's, a, there's another town over there or there's another tribe over there and I'm gonna trade with them, then all of a sudden I want something of fair value. And then all of a sudden it gets more complex and it's like, well, now we've got things out there, but it's like, you might not have something that I need immediately and I might not want your potatoes. So then we need an intermediary. And then of course we started to look at things like metals. Uh, and it, as we went through that, um, through that system, it always went to silver and gold that they were the uh, apex metals that would have the best store of value, the best longevity uh, and gold particularly because it, it didn't tarnish. You could keep it for as long as you want, uh, millions of years. It was extremely hard to get. So it was extremely energy dense. Uh, somebody uh, put it really well that in the, well, he was telling me that he was going through the process of how you make a clay brick. And he said, you know, you know, you need to do all these processes and steps. You need to fire it. You need to transport it. And he said that there's an energy embodiment there. Uh, and this is a good way of looking at different uh, commodities, things that we pull out of the ground, they're energy embodiments. Because when you go to extract these things, they require you to give you finite time, your finite energy, and put that into nature, into Mother Nature to pull it out. So it's an energy embodiment. And the more energy and effort it takes, the higher value energy embodiment it is. So, of course, gold's right up there at the very top. You could say platinum's alongside it, but 
it's better than platinum for money purely because it's less brittle and it's more widely dispersed across planet Earth. So that's why people turn to gold. And if you look back to all societies, it was always gold or sometimes silver. Sometimes it was a silver standard too. Uh, but what we started to do is had, as we started to have more and more complex civilizations, we started to have this disconnect between the people who were actually extracting these energy embodiments. And then we started to have this whole second tier of society that only used energy embodiments. They didn't extract them. They were just using them. So it was people who were creating things that were not necessary to survive because everything the people, you know, energy embodiments are there for us to survive. It's food, it's water, it's fuel, it's metals that make our life easy. But then you have people nowadays working in finance, working in business, working in media and marketing. Now they use energy embodiments, but they have zero connection at all to mother nature. And what's happened is we've had this whole system designed around allowing the people that don't extract energy embodiments exploiting the labor of those that do and often the labor of those that work in nature is much more valuable and it's much more difficult it's much more time consuming it wrecks people's bodies you know if you're working in the fields day in day out or if you're working in mines your entire life uh, yes there's a fitness element to it those people often live long lives but they're tough lives they're hard lives uh, and yet we've got this now financialized sector and this way of living where you have no idea the energy cost or the environmental cost that went into extracting those energy embodiments. And you are often far rewarded far more greatly for your contribution to society if you're making, say, a movie than the guy who's out in the film, uh, sorry, than the guy who's out in the field actually producing the food that you need to survive you know, that you need to live. And I guess it's a parasitic relationship as well. And I don't mean that people who work in that are parasites, but the relationship between that sector and the energy embodiment sector is parasitic. And that disconnect has enabled them to go to this debt-based system because people no longer need to care about if this gold or this piece of silver is a good trade for that catload of spuds or that catload of turnips or whatever it is. Because it's like, no, we don't care because we're getting the paper and the system's working for us. But the, what you'll notice is over the past 50 years, the people working in nature's economy, they're actually being impoverished. Farmers can barely sub, uh, make a living now. Most of them are subsidized. Uh, lumberjacks, people like that. It's very low, very high risk work. Now, why is that? That is actually a complete inversion. So it goes back to this um, occult kind of, I'd say it's like we've got this esoteric and occult demonic system that exploits people uh, and it inverts reality so it pushes everything the wrong way around so you know we should be rewarding those people the most because of course they're the ones that are ensuring that we can live you know we couldn't sit here making a podcast chance if we didn't have somebody else providing for us providing the food providing the electricity the energy etc so much in there to unpack so for like i'm going to comment on the last part first I think that possibly the what you describe as kind of like a parasitic inversion might be an outgrowth of in a sneaky way and maybe an unintentional way of the caste systems that came from the past and that are still evident in some parts of the world. My mom was telling me about her missionary friend who went to India and they're helping just do tasks and painting walls and the the families there were of a caste where it was seen as below them to do even something as simple as paint their own wall in their own house. 
And so you see some aspects of India that are degrading and kind of in squalor. And it's coming from this weird psychological barrier of, I can't do that. It's below me. Right. And in a way, that's how it's kind of seen like manual labor. Oh, that's below me. I'm going to work in high finance or, you know, something along those lines. And then there's another element to the use of gold and silver versus the use of, you know, sort of empty ones and zeros on a screen. And that's the correspondent quality of these metals to particular cosmic energies. And it seems far out at first, but I'm going to give an example. This is just a personal anecdote, but I oftentimes, when I'm doing tunings for people, I will consult the tarot if I maybe have a little question or need more clarification on something I'm running into in their energy field. And I usually don't even tell them that I'm consulting the tarot. I just take a peek and it always gives me more context. And it's like always right. It's actually pretty uh, uh, mind blowing. And I had this client where she'd had a lot of, uh, she was having problems with her knees, right? And uh, there's also problems with her mother in her past. And so I drew a card to like find out the qualities inherited or imposed on her from the mother. And I got the devil card, the devil card, not good or bad inherently, but in this context, we're looking at for like some of the negative components of it. That card of the major arcana is ruled by Saturn because it's a card of Capricorn. And Saturn corresponds to lead and it corresponds and also. to the knees. So there's actually a lot more to this example that I could give. But the, the really far out part about this that I didn't find out till later <laughs> near the end of the session is that not only had she had pain in her knees and we're working with all these, uh, you know, shadow aspects of Saturn and Capricorn for her, but that also she had mysteriously been severely poisoned by lead and didn't know where it came from. And that's Saturn. So in some sense, there has, and in my experience, there's some reality to the correspondences between planetary or archetypal energies and different metals. And so whenever we are using gold as our medium of exchange, what we are storing in our value is the solar energy, the life force or pranic, you know, ordering principle that gives and bestows life to all creatures on earth. And so then to replace that with something empty, well, it doesn't seem that bizarre that so much of the work that is done or the professions of our current world are in a sense empty, you know, cheap manufacturing of goods that just end up in a landfill or professions where there's no tangible physical life force energy or store value of, you know, extraction of, of an embodied life force energy from nature, as you're saying. And so <laughs> I want you to give you a response to that, a time to respond to that. But, you know, I want to have another question involved there. No, that's that's awesome. Yeah. And uh, there's a lot I actually that came up when you said that uh, tarot. Yeah, I, I actually use the tarot too, Chance. Uh, I obviously working in coaching and um, and therapy. I, I did a lot of uh, work on psychology, particularly performance psychology, but I also did a lot on depth psychology. And I found the tarot really useful as well for helping to elicit symbols or bring out the subconscious ideas of people. So I actually do depth, uh, depth psychology and tarot readings with people. I do them online as well, if anyone's interested. Uh, but like you, I find that's really helpful for getting people to, what I find with the tarot is that often 
brings to somebody's mind something that otherwise they wouldn't have thought of. So it elicits something from the subconscious. It draws it out because these are archetypal images. So oftentimes when I show somebody a card, they'll say, oh, this reminds me of a dream or this reminds me of something uh, from years ago. And that will then take us down the path where um, likely at the end of that path there's going to be something useful, something that can help them overcome whatever it is they're struggling with or answer the question. Uh, usually... If someone does a, a session with me, they're trying to figure something out. There's something that they're not sure about. And that's why I think the tarot comes in. So like you, I find them really valuable. And uh, going back to what you said about this idea of, um, of lead uh, and, the, and this kind of inversion that they've managed to achieve, I, I, think, I think it is a form of occultism that's, ha that's been done to us. It's a trick that's been played on us. And most people today, when it comes to like the energy, like I wear a pure gold ring, most people would not have any relationship with that. They wouldn't think of it as something that was like, I see gold as a divine metal. It's the, because it represents the sun, like you said, but most people wouldn't have that view of gold. Uh, and it's the same with uh, the fiat notes, the paper they've got, they've got no relationship with it. And as the currency gets debased, what you find in societies, and you see this throughout history, if you look back at past hyperinflations, is morality gets debased also. So it's this idea of going down through the different ages or down through the different metals. So we start in the golden age, then we go to silver, to bronze. Then we have the hero age, then the iron age. That's how the Greeks saw it. And then it's lead. Uh, I actually add lead to it. I think there's a real, there's a depth there beyond iron. I think it's lead. I think that's where we are. We're in a real depth. Uh, and then we'll reverse back through it. And I think the same thing happens with morality. So because they've taken us to these debt notes and they are debt. So when you get that piece of paper, we're exchanging debt tokens. It's just a debt token. It's somebody else's liability. Whereas gold is no one's liability. It was here. It's natural. Um, you can believe in it. If you believe in a creator, as I do, and as I think everyone should strive to, because that is where we find meaning, it was put here for us to use and it was spread out across the world. Not so we could go robbing each other and becoming pirates. It was put out and spread out across the world to facilitate cooperation. Uh, and I think that is the ultimate aim of man is to cooperate so we can improve, so we can get better. But when you've got debt, it reverts all that back to the, um, like we said, it inverts it all and takes us back to this um, idea that there's meaningless, it's worthless, it's nothingness. And that filters into society too. And that's why we've got what I would say is the most nihilistic and meaningless uh, generations that we've ever had. And by meaningless, I mean, that's how they view life. That's how they see things. And of course, when you see life as meaningless, when you're nihilistic, you start to enact that you're, and you start to enact archetypes of that. And I don't think I've ever seen a time where I've seen people so lacking in empathy for one another. And you see videos on Twitter and online of people doing things, terrible things to each other. And it used to be rare. You know, these things happened, but it was rare. But now it's kind of becoming mainstream. Uh, it's actually becoming entertainment for people to go out and stream themselves doing something cruel or nasty. Uh, and I, again, I think that that is intrinsically a part of the monetary system too. You know, meaningless in the monetary system, worthlessness in the monetary system, that filters out into society. Uh, and that's what's allowed us to get to this place of kind of like a mass uh, low empathy or this age of lead. So true. And then one of the big drivers of the economy is the military industrial complex where lead is definitely spent. Right. Yeah. <laughs> 
And in scripture, of course, debt is sin, trespass, guilt, that which renders one liable to punishment. And an older definition of debt would also, again, from the 1828 dictionary that I love so much, is that which anyone is obliged to do or to suffer. So as you're describing this lowering of the moral ceiling, like the the bar is so low, <laughs> bar being, you know, interesting word to use there. The lead aspect is like that in this debt system is that people's, you know, without that solar energy of the, with the correspondence of gold, you know, the sun is what brings light and light is what brings truth and consciousness and even empathy. Because if, if everything's happening in the dark, it's hard to have empathy because you can't perceive what's around you or, or the world around you or the people around you. So, um, you know, you're describing earlier in the conversation, farmers and, and people living in a community close together and how they're trying to create win-win situations and using gold as a store of value and morality is implicit to this community element. And then now yeah, sin, <laughs> trespass against one another is like a social currency. And it's like, is that related to this removal of gold from people's everyday life or experience? Like how many people even listening right now have maybe never even touched a gold? And that's mm -hmm. a, is there, uh, do you think that there's an attractive quality to owning gold that brings morality, consciousness, life force, and, and perhaps more wealth in the true sense, not in the debt note sense into your life just by uh, possessing it or being hear it yeah i actually do and i guess one of the ways that i look at this is there's very few things in life today that do not have some kind of negative uh, consequence or impact on somebody else or, or the environment for example and even gold yes today modern mining techniques uh, would be polluting and they would you know they are damaging to the environment is particularly certain metals i mean if you look at lithium and the tailings that they leave behind like this is not good for the planet uh, and we know that but uh, but putting that to one side um gold is something that is very symbolic and it's very meaningful and it always has been to humans and i believe in our collective subconscious that all exists like it's still there uh, and what's happened over the past hundred years especially is they've managed to suck meaning out of our lives so that there's no meaning there and then they fill our lives with um occult symbolism or symbols that are dark or that lead to darkness and they're everywhere they're all around us uh, and of course the mainstream media is filled flooding our lives with all of these negative images uh, and what we used to have was we used to have symbols of meaning imbued in our lives so for example a pure gold ring why was it pure? Why did we use it in the marriage ceremony? It wasn't because it was the ring of Saturn, although people say it's associated with that, but it was also because it represented something. It represented our highest aim. You know, it was purity. It was something that was untarnishable. And therefore that was symbolic of the relationship. When you was marrying somebody, you gave each other a pure gold ring to symbolize that highest aspiration and that joint aspiration. You've now combined each other. Um, you've combined your lives, two has become one. And all of this symbolism meant something. And when you look down at that ring on your hand, it did have that divine energy. Because remember, the marriage ceremony always took place between you, your partner, but also creator as well. There was also that spiritual side. And um, whichever, um, whichever 
religion or um, belief structure you had. If you was a pagan, you'd have a pagan ceremony, whatever it was, but it would be deeply meaningful. And everything that you had around you would be meaningful too. So for example, if you was uh, living in a country where you were storing your money uh, in, we- in gold, your wealth in gold, should I say, you'd have pieces of jewelry and that'd be really meaningful too. So you might have a woman passed down her necklace that was passed down to her from her grandmother and on and on it would go. So that piece of jewelry would be meaningful. So there was meaning imbued in the gold all the time. And of course, if I pass down something generation to generation to generation, you're much less likely to exhaust that wealth and have one generation come along and saying, oh, I'm going to sell this because that in itself had meaning, the object, not just because it was valuable, but because it had all of this personal significance it would it came down and people you knew that people had stored that wealth they struggled and fought to not sell that gold to keep it in the family so that you could build wealth over generations rather than have somebody come along and just say right we're going to the beach we're going to sell all the gold <laughs> you know we're going to go have a one one year in australia party kind of thing but that is what we've got today and again it's because we've had all of the meaning and, and positive symbolism sucked out of our life of which i think gold is one of the highest and most powerful positive symbols, but yet we are having all of these negative symbols forced on our life, along with this debt system that represents lead. Uh, and when you combine all of that stuff and people don't see or have these um, indicators and symbols around them that pull them back to truth, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a really toxic environment and situation. And that's why I think we've got this world now that looks hopeless. It's certainly not hopeless, but it can feel it at times. And I know people... Uh, over the past few years, especially since COVID, they've felt more hopeless because it feels like, well, where's the good coming from? Who's going to come along and save us from this? And of course, the person who's going to save you from it is that person in the mirror. <laughs> very, very true, man. I'm thinking about how during cooties, they were the way of saving people was to give the you know put deposit money into their bank account, right? The relief programs and whatever. And you're talking about symbols and the the loss of meaning, but to to our to our unconscious, you know, to our psyche, our soul, the meaning of anything is never really lost. And this symbol for money, the kind of universal symbol, this S shape with the line or the two lines through it, that is basically, in my opinion, a version of the rod of Asclepius or even the Caduceus. Mm-hmm. It's the brazen serpent. And the brazen serpent that Moses raises in the wilderness and it saves the Israelites. It's a savior symbol. Christ on the cross is a brazen symbol or brazen serpent symbol. And brazen just means bronze. This word that the Hebrews used for the brazen serpent is uh, nekushtan or nekustan. And uh, nekash means snake. Tan means snake. All of that is, uh, to me, indicative though of how like this (laughs) the the serpent trick if you will not to demonize serpents but if we're looking at the allegory of like the bible where the serpent is the tempter it is this temptation into the false valuation of things and putting this brazen serpent symbol on money or making it money is interesting because it's like in God we trust is on the money, but in the very much like the, the, they live wearing the, they live glasses sense what the money is really telling you with the symbol on it. And within God, we trust is that this is your God. 
And it's not your God as in gold, as in A-D-O, as in A-U-D-O, as in solar energy, you know, as a, a proper symbol for the divine. It's the emptiness, you know? So it's like just the money itself with its debt-based nature or its empty nature, it's sort of telling you like that they're in this unconscious way. It's telling people that there is no God, <laughs> you know, like this is your God. It's the, it's on the money. Here's your brazen serpent. And then there's more to consider too, with the bronze itself being a co combination of copper and tin, copper being a Venusian and tin being a Jupiterian idea going back to potentially the origins of money with the Phoenicians or the Holy sailors, whatever we might want to call them, that they were mining their tin from Britain. Uh, they were creating bronze, you know, like their empire was all about expansion, Jupiterian idea. It was all about beauty with the architecture and the things that they left behind. So, you know, that society running on bronze in a sense versus our society running on emptiness. It's no wonder that we can't even hardly comprehend how they were doing what they were doing. Yeah, I think you've hit on something really important, Chance, and that's this theological aspect to it as well, because what they've managed to do is convince society of existential debt. And when Jesus, well, or the story of Jesus, what that's about is about somebody atoning for that ex existential debt. So we're born indebted because we're sinful creatures. Uh, we commit sins. And somebody has to atone for those sins. And how do you atone for those sins? It's existential debt, they call it. And Jesus came along and he said, well, I'm going to die for your sins. And therefore, the debt to God is repaid. And that was the story. That was the idea there that the existential debt was gone. Now, their system puts existential debt back into our lives so that you're born into unpayable debt that debt can never be repaid chance and your child or your son or your daughter they're going to be born into existential debt and on and on it goes and everybody must and the money is the savior because you're paying everyone. the debt with the money they made the money into the yeah savers. and every person every person must bleed you know every person has to uh, give their taxes every person has to you know they call it public debt you know, the, the debt that your country's got itself into from printing money, lending money from a private central bank, that's your debt, that's public debt. No, it's not public debt. You know, they created that debt. You didn't ask for that debt. You didn't ask to be uh, trillions of dollars in debt, you know, but they call it public debt. So it's this idea, they're constantly working on the psychology to make us think that we are born into debt and we're gonna die into debt. Well, I don't believe that. I don't believe anyone's born with existential debt. I believe you're born a free man, I'm born a free man, and anyone that listen, is listening to this is free. And those debts that they try and attach to us, they're trying to hook us into that system and take us into it. But I believe you can extricate yourself from it. And going back to the idea of gold, one of the things that I really love about gold is that it has no counterparty risk and no other liability upon it. Once you have that gold, it's yours. It's outside of that system, this really parasitic system. Uh, and of course, there's no debt attached to it. And that is why they it hate needs it. no title. You don't have to have a deed or a title to it even. Yeah, no debt attached to it, no nothing. It's outside the system. And therefore, it starts to actually undermine the system when you take those fiat notes, those debt notes, and transfer it into something that then exits the system. Because then it leaves behind the debt in the system, but pulls out something of value that can be kept. Uh, so that's one of the reasons why I think it's really good to understand these metals, whether it's gold, silver, uh, or other stores of value. You know, there's land and all kinds of things. But the difference with 
say silver and gold and land is that land is attached to a country and therefore it's still attached to the system. You pay taxes on the land, they can confiscate the land. Uh, and yes, whilst they can confiscate gold or anything else that you've got, it's outside. So it can be a not, it's anonymous in that sense that it's outside the system. It can be moved, it can be transported. Uh, and yeah, I think it's really good just to reflect on those things and reflect on the system and especially the idea of existential debt. You know, because I think they tried to put, I think the reason why in Christianity they focus on the death, on the cross, on the suffering, and it's to try and make people feel less than, it's to try and bring back the idea that we're indebted, because now you're indebted to Christ, because he died on the cross for you. So they just kind of played a trick on us there and brought back the existential debt, rather than focus on the message, which was the liberation. Is no, no, you're liberated now, you're free. You're born free and you die free. So I think that, you know, that's the trick they've tried to pull on us. And if you look back to our history, anybody that's tried to preach that message and give that message, uh, particularly in the medieval times, they were soon and swiftly dealt with, put it that way. Oh, man, I'm excited for hour two. Got a lot of fun notes on the list here. It's been great. It's definitely starting to warm up. But before we hop over to there, can you tell people how they can work with you? How, what type of content they might expect if they want to hop over to your channel and any other ways you would like them to support you or connect with you. Yeah, sure. Thank you, Chance. So if you're interested in um, more about finance, I've got a YouTube channel called the Parallel Systems Broadcast, where I focus mainly on finance, but I also do quite a few live streams on there, which is more to do with um, self-work. So we talk about, you know, building a mindset of success, uh, coping through hard times, uh, so there's a little bit of coaching stuff on there. So you can check out the Parallel Systems broadcast. It's YouTube, Odyssey, Rumble, and Rockfin. I also have a podcast called the Parallel Mike Podcast, which is more uncensored. Uh, that's over on parallelmike.com. It's the same as you, Chance. It's the first hour. Um, is usually for free, first hour or so. And then the second hour I put on my website. I've also got a patron that's attached to the YouTube channel. So that's a patron where I've got a newsletter, audio newsletter, all about finance, all about investing. Um, it's something that I've been doing for many years. So I help people out, get themselves into a position where the wealth's secured. So as this financial system comes collapsing down, they've got something stored away. They've got backup plans. They've got ideas of where to go geopolitically if the risk gets too high in their country. Uh, we'll talk about getting yourself off grid, getting yourself some security in terms of food supply and energy and water. Uh, and we've also got a private telegram group. Um, also, if you're interested in uh, working with me one-to-one, -one, I do uh, preparedness consultations. So over on my website, that's for people who want to ask specific questions about maybe your pension, securing that, and different strategies for investing uh, in real assets or getting money out of the system prior to the collapse, uh, talking about going off-grid, all of those things. And I also do one-to-one uh, -one work in terms of like coaching and um, the uh, depth tarot sessions too. So yeah, you can just get in touch with me if you're interested, check out the website and find out more. Awesome, man. Tons to go into in the second hour. We'll talk about resilience in the face of potential collapse and building wealth, escaping the system. Maybe a little, get into a little crypto talk. Looking forward to it, man. Sounds awesome. Yeah, yeah, man. It's been super fun. Thanks for coming on. And yeah, yeah. take care out there, everybody. Join us over on the second hour. Oh, and Mike's got a rock fin now, too. So you become an oh, Interverse supporter. Yeah, I'm, I'm stoked to be over there. Yeah, you become a, an Interverse supporter on Rockfin or sign up through Mike's Rockfin and you're going to have access to 
either or our premium content, both of ours. So it's a great system. Love Rockfin, been very helpful. Join us over there as we continue this conversation. Thanks for coming on, Mike. Much love. Thank you, Jens. All right, all right. I hope you guys enjoyed my conversation with Parallel Mike. What a fun dude. We have so much agreement. <laughs> I felt like the conversation was a lot of, I agree, I agree, I agree. But it was good because the things we were agreeing on, I hope we're bringing value to everybody involved. This definitely feels like a win, win, win type of conversation. You know, he and I both get to benefit from having a cool new friendship. And you guys out there, I really think can get a lot out of the psychology of the wealthy and abundant mindset, not just the whole think and grow rich, mm, law of attraction, oversimplified, culty mindset, but the real energetics around the generative principle. So if you guys enjoyed it, please. Please uh, consider supporting Universe and jumping on the Plus extension. Really, it's the second hour where the psychology of wealth gets fleshed out in a more complete way. So if you are new to the channel, you can find Interverse on Rockfin or Patreon to get the second hour of this and every other episode that has an extension, usually one a week. And this particular conversation, oh yeah, find that in the show notes, by the way, you know, or patreon.com slash interverse, rockfin, R-O-K-F-I-N dot com slash interverse. If you sign up for Rockfin, you'll also be able to access the content that Parallel Mike puts out on Rockfin now that he is a new member of the network. Really great time over there. Definitely could replace your Netflix or your Disney Plus or whatever. So yeah, in the second hour of this talk, we got into athletic psychology this you know because he he had a transcendence from inability to ability with marathons through a sports psychologist and interestingly that transferred for him into the mindset on money and we discussed how to really build this mentality of there always being enough like the real the true faith behind our relationship to nature and our environment we discussed how Mike built up his wealth and escaped from the city and from the sort of slavery of paying your entire salary just to afford a flat. They call it a flat over there. We would call that an apartment. <laughs> and I really enjoyed the realization I had about how morality itself is gold. Truly, that gold and morality go hand in hand. That the morality, the more morality, oh my gosh. There's so much to this weave. The more morality that you are able to attain, I guess, the more your generative power will be kind of automatic and, and more instantaneous. Love that. Definitely has a lot to do with overcoming the guilt and shame programming and the behaviors that make us feel guilty, maybe kind of, a, you know, re rightfully so, depending on the behavior. But it's fascinating how all this ties into the sacral chakra. We, talk, we talked about this in depth. The sacral chakra according to the sonic alchemy program that Eileen McCusick has put together, you know, corresponding different sounds you can make with your voice to resonating in different chambers or parts of the body, the sacral chakra, if I'm not mistaken, the, the vocalization for activating, resonating, harmonizing the sacral chakra is more like more, please more. 
more, more. And that's interesting because your mores are your morality. <laughs> I do think morality and gold go hand in hand. So anyway, we talked about that at length. Great mindset improvements and upgrades you can take on to help you get out of your own way with getting into the flow of perpetual abundance and synchronicity with life and nature. Then we talked about the Bitcoin, <laughs> the crypto casino and the morality involved in all that. And then a really useful conversation on the strategies around investing in metals and how you might like what you might be, what, what the right approach or a good approach from his perspective. And I tend to agree, although I'm not doing a lot of investing in metals. And then finally, at the end, we got into a, we opened up a whole new weave on esoteric Poland and the ruins of the invisible college and underground Nazi architecture and secret tunnels and all kinds of cool shit. So like that could have been its own hour. Well, we hit that pocket about Poland where he lives currently. The energy just got a full refresh and it was like, I could go another hour on this, but we wrapped it up. Great second hour. Definitely go check it out. Super worth it. And yeah, man. So other ways to support Interverse would be Tippecanoe Herbs. Can't, I cannot speak highly enough of Tippecanoe Herbs. Tons of great products. One thing I love, I don't know if this is even on the store, but this is something maybe a hack for yourself. Kyle over there, he sent me Calamus, these little nibs of Calamus. And Calamus is also known as Vacha, which is a like Vox for voice in Latin. And I've been really enjoying these little nibs where I chew on one before I do a podcast or maybe before I do a tuning and it opens up the throat energies, moves the throat energies, invites more focus to come to the throat as well. And uh, particularly where it's most noticeable, I think maybe this is what inspired Kyle to send it to me, but I've been taking lessons on Greek and learning to uh, speak Greek, which is fun. And I, seem to be more able to pronounce things and kind of in the flow of retaining and reciting the Greek whenever I have chewed on one of these calamus nibs. So I love that. But anyway, typical new herbs, you're supporting a wonderful family, a wonderful small business, and you can check out the link to that in the show notes, use the code interverse for 10% off. And I get a cut of the proceedings as well. Kyle is very generous about that. And you know, if you haven't been catching our vibrance where we talk about the herbal doctrine of signatures for the current zodiacal sign, that is a great series. I hope you check it out. Other ways to support the podcast, of course, besides the Rockfin and Patreon would be to, well, <laughs> this is a good one. We have a brand new audio book out, me and Dylan. Dylan Sicosio should be no stranger to you if you're uh, familiar with the channel. If you're coming here from Mike's podcast and you're just checking it out for the first time, Mike also had Dylan on right after he had me on. So Dylan's book, The Holy Sailors, the fifth book of the Spirit World series, is now available as an audiobook narrated by me. Pick that up and both of us will get uh, support through your purchase. Very appreciated. You can use the link in the show notes if you've never done an Audible trial to get a free first book on Audible. And you can get The Holy Sailors for free that way if you haven't taken advantage of that particular program. Now, The Holy Sailors is a book you're going to want to check out if you're interested in ancient Ireland, ancient Britain, and how they are connected to the Greeks and the Phoenicians, as well as 
the affinity between the languages, particularly Sanskrit, Latin, and the ancient Celtic languages. There's so much there. Really good book. I had a lot of fun narrating it. And pretty soon after I finish some other stuff, I'm going to jump into kicking off the process of the next book. And for a while, maybe the last Spirit World book for you to catch up on because Dylan's doing a Substack uh, subscription model for his research now. Good way to support him. And wow, other things I would like to talk to Mike about or just things that I find interesting on this subject of economic freedom. You know, one thing I get some flack from, uh, from my dad, no, no shade to dad if you're tuning in, but like, you know, he's always talking to me about what about your retirement? You know, what about your social security? You're not paying into social security. And social security is basically a form of pension. You know, it's like you retire and you keep getting a check, right? Let's just look into the definition of pension from Webster's 1828. One, an annual allowance of a sum of money to a person by government in consideration of past services, civil or military. (laughs) Hmm. (laughs) Particularly officers, soldiers, and seamen receive pensions when they're disabled for further services. So in a way, it's like, as soon as you're accepting the idea of the pension or the social security, you're accepting that you're disabled. I know that maybe that's a stretch for some people, but the second definition, an annual payment by an individual to an old or disabled servant, (laughs) a payment of money or rent or a yearly payment in the ends of court. That's a whole side weave to it. Another definition of pension, a certain sum of money paid to a clergyman in lieu of tithes. (laughs) The seventh definition, an allowance or annual payment considered in the light of a bribe. So I don't know. The whole idea of pension is like you have the freedom to not work anymore after you've put in enough slave time, right? That you have this security from society, the social security, the SS. (laughs) And the truth is there is no security in the society. There never will be. The crowd cannot save you. The crowd is designed to cannibalize the individual. And as soon as you're like on this tip of I'm retired now, I'm accepting that I'm disabled and receiving my corporate pension, that type of freedom is an enfranchisement in the sense of Freedom in the legal definition, meaning franchise, as in like the McDonald's around the corner is a franchise. Freedom means corporate personhood. It, so, you know, to accept that type of freedom, is it really freedom? No, because you're getting paid by an entity that might not even exist tomorrow, for one, or the currency you're being paid in might be devalued or, you know, how much you paid into Social Security and how much you receive who knows with like collapse or inflation that might not, there's no guarantees in it is all I'm saying. Nothing, no, no problem. If you're receiving pension and I'm not upset about that or whatever, I'm just thinking for myself, like I have no desire to develop dependency on that system or to, (laughs) to invest my future security in the social contract of a corporate pension. It's just not for me. So I like the idea of 
a different type of resilience where it wouldn't matter if the whole economy crashed, that I would have the land and the space and the means to keep providing for myself and my family or for my you know, progeny to provide for us. You know, that's the real social security is when you're too old to work the land that you have family that you've generated that can work the land and that they can help you. But ultimately, you know, I just don't want to ever be disabled and useless. I don't want to accept a mentality of in the future, I can be disabled because I have this free debt based currency coming to me. Anyway, that's some of my thoughts on pension. And Clint Richardson would have way more to say about it (laughs) as it being kind of an evil idea. But, you know, another concept that would be fun to talk to Mike about would be money velocity as a part of the alchemy of the economy. I've touched on it before, but it's fascinating to me to consider that as the velocity of money, as the speed of trade is getting more rapid, that people are like getting aged by that, that in a way our perception of time is influenced by that. Everything's speeding up, speeding up, speeding up. And it's like less, people feel like they have less time. They don't have enough time. Their to-do list is so long, but the day is so short and all that. And, you know, when you're, Having a type of day where you're hanging out in your own yard on your own land, you're doing your gardening. It's like, wow, I'm done already. <laughs> I have so much day left, even though so much work can get done. The point being that our perception of the flow of time is highly subjective. And that subjective perception on the flow of time is being, in my opinion, modified by the throttling or the opening up of the speed of the velocity of how money is traded and how much money is coming in and out of our particular straw man fictional accounts. Anyway, (laughs) probably didn't flesh out that idea the way I wanted to, but I think I'm going to wrap up the conversation here. It's been super fun. Loved hanging out with Mike. Hope to see him again. I do recommend people get into the Tippecanoe herbs, check out their website. Like right here, I have a lavender roll on. And the other day I got kind of a sunburn. I don't ever sunburn in a painful way, but I got kind of red and you use this lavender essential oil and it's in a handy dandy roll on form. And that burn will just be sucked right out of you. It's awesome. That's one, one great use. Of course, I love Kapow. That's the one I'm always promoting. Get yourself some Kapow, Kapow are up. And, you know, I like the, uh, the gladder bladder. I like the allergy no sneezy. He's got a tincture for all seasons. So check out Kyle's Tip of Canoe Herbs. Love you, buddy, if you're, if you're still listening at this point. All right, so uh, we'll wrap it up. You guys have a good time out there wherever you are. Hope you benefited from this psychological upgrade on your relationship to currency and money and wealth. And you know, keep doing it out there. Remember, morality is gold. So be good. Much love. Bye-bye. <laughs>